You better pick up your mom and get going. Yeah, right. You look a little pale. Are you okay? Yeah, I don't know, Doc. I mean, it's just this whole thing with my mother. What, 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 what? I just don't know if I can go through with it. Hitting on her. Nobody said anything about hitting her. You're just going to take a few liberties with her. See, that's what I mean. I mean, God, I can't believe I'm, I'm actually going to feel up my own mother. You know, this is the kind of thing that could screw me up permanently. Well, what if I go back to the future and I end up being gay? Why shouldn't you be happy? First one's really overloaded. Second and third have some. But yeah, Back to the Future just is really the complete retelling of the Egyptian Osirian cycle from start to finish. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grime America show. This week we're going to be talking with uh, former guest Robert W. Sully Vin the Fourth Sully. Uh, but first, Graham, don't say it's not a synchronicity, Dunlop. How's it going, buddy? Hey, man, not doing bad in the sweat lodge. Yeah, our, I was babysitting. Our studio, our studio turned into from an igloo to a sweat lodge. Yeah, that's fucked up how that <laughs> happened, eh? A million to one shot, Doc. Actually, it's not bad right now with the furnace off, but we are covered in stuff all over the walls, and it's pretty hot in here. I like in a fort. It's like a fort. Yeah, it's like a, like a fort from when we are little kids. A lot like a fort. A shitty fort. So anyway, yeah, how yeah, you been? Good. Yeah, good. Christmas is coming. Very fast. Fast and hard. Yeah. Yeah, we got to solidify the rest of our uh, our guests for December. Who do we got coming up? We got Oh, uh, we got Alex DeCaris coming up. We got uh, Randall Carlson again, of course, too. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be good. Uh, it'll be good. And then it'll be the holiday season. 18 months. I think actually we're right around, uh, I think December 1st was our 18th month anniversary. Oh, yeah? Is that it's, an anniversary, no, 18 it? months? Yeah. It's, is it? Sure. It's a year and a half, right? That's like a so, high school anniversary. It should be. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. It seems longer than that, though. I thought oh. we were at 18 months already, no? No, well, we started, well, May, we're calling it May. June 1st, fucking 20. No, it was May, May 30th. It was like May 24th. Oh, yeah, right, okay. Yeah. But we called it June 1st because it's just easier. Yeah. So June 1st to June, July, August, September, October, November, December. You can count. Good for you. Fuck you. <laughs> anyway, yeah, 18 months. Oof. Time flies. I suppose it's time to shut her down, really. I've learned everything I need to learn. Yeah, not even close, man. It just gets, oh. the hole gets bigger and deeper. and it would be a better way to say that. Anyway, uh, oh, we got a money bomb winner. Should we start with that? Yeah. You got some other shit you want to go do? I got lots of stuff, but we can lots start with of the stuff. money bomb. Yeah. Start with the money bomb? Sure. Winner is Anthony Vincente. Vincente? Yeah. Tony? Yeah, hundred bucks, right? hundred bucks? Yeah, we got exactly two hundred bucks on the wire. All subscribers. So we're giving we 50 did get, of that back to we did get what? Anthony. So we're giving fifty percent of that back to Anthony. Fifty fifty. Yeah, yeah, I shot him an Evo, so he gets a hundred. We did get three new subscribers, so that yeah. was uh that was a good month for that. 
but no off the cuff. The months before, we had a lot of uh, a couple of big ones, not big ones, but uh, extra donations, I suppose. And in in November, we got new subscribers, but that was it. But uh, actually, well, John Cusimo is pretty much a subscriber, I suppose. We got a few people that don't subscribe but donate every month. Speaking of which, we have a new way to support the show. Motherfucker, I don't think Ca- I can remember the Cast URL. Backer? Oh yeah, castbacker.com slash grimerica um, is a new way, PayPal free. We did get some people before that were a little hesitant of subscribing because they don't like PayPal. So now uh, all you need is a credit card or Visa debit or something like that. Go to castbacker.com slash grimerica and you can subscribe there. I think it's four ninety five a month there. They take less than PayPal. Yeah, yeah, we're on there. Forward slash grammar. Yeah, it looks good. I designed that myself. Oh, did you? Ish. Yeah, yeah, it kind of matches the website a little bit. Cool. That's what I was going for, motherfucker. Right on. So, yeah, do you, you don't have a list of all the people that uh, were part of that Money Bomb D that we could read out? Well, you had it. Well, it's on the hat now. Where's the hat? It's right here, your purple, purple hat. Here, give me a handful. We have Joel. You're falling behind already, Mark. Thank you, Mark and Joel. Take back the farm. Lane. Thanks, Lane. You spelt it wrong. Dave Z. Paul N. Nikki B. Zed. Dave Zed in Canada, I guess. Jeff Dan- D. Daniel. I'm out. Charity. Carol B. John C. Todd. J. Marco, Pato, Wayne D, and Anthony V, the winner. Anthony V. Yeah. Congratulations, buddy. And Justin's in there, too. Destino. <coughs> so thanks for all your uh, subscriptions. It really helps pay our expenses here. No ads at all. I wanted to push that. Like I was thinking about that the other day, because when you listen to something like Coast to Coast or, or the Paracast, there's like ads every fucking 10 minutes. This is like, you can listen to like a one, two, or three-hour chat with our guests, with no interruptions, no ad, no corporate sponsorships, it's all value for value. And really, it's an expense. And the only way we can pay for those expenses is with your help. So thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it does seem like the subscri- subscriber rate is going up, which is which is encouraging. It's good to see people uh, give five bucks. Speaking of which... I love that jingle. So it's time for the profound UFO quote of the week, I guess. It's a good one. Are you uh, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, we had many adventures flying under primitive conditions in the frozen north, but none compared with this. I looked back and saw something that didn't make sense. It was like nothing like flying machines of that period. It was hexagonal, flat, and seemingly made of aluminum or some other metal, with no breaks in the surface and no rivets. At the same time, I had a spooky feeling. I can't explain it. It was as if I felt the presence of whoever was inside that craft, and the feeling was hostile. That's from Lieutenant Colonel Peter Grunet, the Royal Danish Air Force, describing incident in HES. No, HE-8 seaplane over Greenland in 1932. Greenland? 1932. Greenland? 1932. 
Greenland? Greenland. I like it, buddy. Yeah, that's a good one, eh? Well done. Well done. Yeah. Colonel Peter Grunet in 1932, seeing silver hexagonal-shaped flying discs. In Greenland. Which is probably full of ice, I think. Not for long. Not with global warming. <laughs> oh, we'll get into that one of these episodes. Yeah, we haven't done global warming in a while. Global cooling. Motherfucker. Actually, it's supposed to be warm next week, so I, won't, are, I won't complain. Aren't we going to try and do an episode on the cold truth? The cold truth? With who? Is that the one we yeah. just got the other yeah. The, yeah. today? Yeah. What's his name? Well, it, Casey is the guy who was just on Coast to Coast, but he's. it sounds like he's got somebody... Uh, helping him out with marketing and all, which is who we got uh, the message from. Booth Media. No, I don't think it was, man. No? No. Yes, it was. No? Absolutely it was. Tom Luongo was the guy. Tom Luongo? Yeah. So anyways, I've got some uh, feedback and uh, wrapped into uh, a couple stories and a synchronicity. You want to hear the synchronicity first, or do you want to start on this? uh, I want to start this new segment out. What new segment? About psychedelic experiences. Uh, I don't know what to call it. I was thinking of something like psychedelic enlightenment or something like that. But some people have bad trips too that aren't necessarily enlightening until maybe later on when they realize that something positive came out of it. But And I, I want to make sure that we don't, we, we, we're clear, like we don't advocate drug use, right? But if you're going to... I do. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're going to... Uh, Use it with, you know, intention and some reverence then. I mean, it's okay, right? We're not, or just you know, to relax. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. I'm not a partaker myself, but I've got nothing against it. So just so you know, we're not advocating use of drugs. Some of us. You're free to have sovereignty over Fine. your consciousness. And sovereignty over your consciousness. Okay, so what basically we're just going to... We want people to send in their experiences in? Yeah, we get them uh, regularly all the time anyway. So I've got a couple to start off with. I mean, it won't be necessarily a weekly thing, but it would be good to talk about people's uh, experiences on, you know, whether it's DMT or LSD or that type of thing. What's your thought? Fuck yeah. Yeah? I like it. I've got an old one here saved. Do you want me to go into it? An old one? Yeah. Like 60s, 70s? No, no. (laughs) No, from one of our listeners. Fuck yeah. Fuck fired up. Fired up. All right. So this is from Holly Denton. Um, we've heard from her before. Um, she says, uh, oh, you didn't. Oh. We're going to need a jingle. So they had a bit of LSD left over. Uh, friends came over for the weekend. They ate it pretty early before anybody else got there. By the time my other friends arrived, we were already tripping. I'd only done one tab, and if I had more, I definitely would have, wouldn't have hesitated to eat it. Also, I'm pretty fucking sure I saw aliens during my trip. I shit you not. Remember the last story I told you about the alienish vibes we got while tripping and accepting it? Well, when I was outside at night during my peak, I started to hear some loud buzzing vibrations in my brain. There were like five different pitches, and I was looking around to the left or right, hoping to see where the noise was coming from. Then I looked up. I saw this alien-like figure in the clouds, above in the clouds. It looked like a cloud, but in the total shape of an alien. It was incredible. I still heard buzzing and vibrations, and it was so intense. 
I saw it so clear, like gray figures all circled around me and my friend just watching us. They weren't scary, but they were definitely intimidating. I was so relieved and startled and stunned, but I saw what I saw and I will never forget it. I think they connected me with me for a few seconds because I looked right at them. They, they looked so close to us like we were sitting in their crystal ball or something. It was great. And then she said, we had some very interesting ideas during our trip. First, the idea of terrorism. It's only an Terrorist? idea. It's only an idea. Terrorist? Nothing more. Terrorist? Americans what? have the idea that other countries are terrorists, but those countries believe we are the terrorists. The government has so much money involved with terrorism. Because of it, we have more technology and national security than ever before. What brings me to the topic of 911? Many believe that 9 that we planned 911 just so we could have 911 is that what you just called it just so we could attack other countries for resources Did you just call it 911 yeah is that okay i don't know i guess we'll see <laughs> instead of 911 you mean yeah don't some people call it 911 still no i don't think anybody's ever called it 911 yeah Maybe on like the first day. Oh, anyways, thanks Holly for your uh, story, your trip. She also forwarded me a couple of cool links. I think I already talked about them. Collectiveevolution.com. Uh, Some pretty cool stories on there. So we'll continue on with that segment. Fuck yeah. Are you Send ready them for in. This one? This is, this oh, is, are you doing two? Yeah, I'm going to start twofer? off with two for, yeah. Yeah, you like to push your luck. Yeah. No, this is, uh, and this is from a new, uh, a new fan from Australia too. His name's Michael. He says, first up, I love your show. It is very, very rapidly becoming one of my favorites, if not my favorite. I've been listening for a while now. I think I first heard of your show on the Graylian Report last year. It was honestly kind of a slow start, but my interest in your show snowballed. To be honest, Grimerica used to be the show I used to listen to when there was nothing else to listen to, but now it's the one podcast I look forward to every single week. The guests you guys have on are often really unique, the kind of people other paranormal podcasts don't tend to pay a lot of attention to. And I'd have to parrot your many other listeners in saying that the vibe of your show has its, has its, that our show has, <laughs> it's super laid back and easy. It's a good balance of casualness and professionalism. So keep it up, guys. So anyways, this is a pretty long, <clears throat> long uh, story, but it's, it's kind of got some synchronistic uh, events in there too that you might want to pay attention to, Darren. There you Shoot. Go. All right. Okay, so uh, this is the craziest trip he's ever had. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut through some of it. Uh, it was LSD, I think. Another LSD one. What are you doing? I'm just what are you cutting through? Okay, so he's hanging out with a friend, and uh, he says, "I'm gonna bring this girl along." And he's like, he wasn't really into third wheeling, but he decided to try it anyways. And uh, it turns out he already knew her, and they were kind of like arch enemies. <laughs> arch enemies? Yeah. So, and there was like, there's a really slim chance that, that they, all three of those people would be hanging out together because they didn't have any like common connections or friends. So, uh, anyways, they had different differences in political opinions. And, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something you'd normally like hate somebody over or whatever, right? So he just found out. <clears throat> That that was the girl that was joining them on this three-way kind of, you know, evening, right? And uh, she was bringing LSD along. So he paid Jane, this we'll, we'll call the girl, and took two doses from her and then he dropped them. I then invited them to take their doses too and they refused. Jane and John, 
So the fact Jane was there even in the first place was pretty weird coincidence. So anyways, so <laughs> it turns out they planned on getting me tripping and then mani- manipulating my trip or whatever for their own enjoyment. Talking to me as if I was five years old and telling me I'm Jesus and dumb shit like that. You guys ever heard people that do shit like that while you're tripping? It's so annoying. <laughs> Needless to say, I felt really betrayed. They would stay completely sober and just laugh at me as I tripped balls. Eventually, John and Jane began getting all friendly on the couch together and shit, trying to tease me with their overall vileness. It was a super uncomfortable situation. I was thankful for the fucking deep sea stingray rainbow looking motherfucker that the ceiling fan had become for a distraction. They were ganging up on me and being all childish and shit, acting like high school bullies. To be honest, basically just saying whatever they could to bring my self-esteem down. Among the scoopy as hell... Scoopy. Scoopy? Among the spooky as hell, shadowy, vaguely humanoid figures I was seeing constantly during this trip, I noticed something standing in the doorway to the living room. It was a German Shepherd, the same breed as my childhood dog Rembrandt. A dog who, according to my parents... My buddy had an old a dog named Rembrandt, an old high school buddy of mine. Really? Yeah. So, according to his parents, was very protective and fond when he was a little kid of, of him, right? He was about 12 when he was born, so he was a pretty old big dog already, died around the age 17, so basically when this guy was five, right? Naturally, I don't have many memories, but the amount of photographs my parents have of me and him together, it seems evident that they're inseparable. Even today, his memory means a lot to me. I stared at this figure and tried to reach out to touch him, but he dissipated into a lightish black smoke, which only moved when I touched it, which was somewhat disturbing. I'm no stranger to hallucinogens, but seriously, there was something about watching your childhood dog be wiped into a weird static smoke. It was then that I looked over to notice Jane holding my phone. She asked me for my passcode. I said, unthinking, 1295, which could have which I could have sworn it was because that's my birth date. And I used that number for a fair un- few unimportant things. She said it didn't work. So she asked again and I replied 1295. Then it occurred to me, why was I trying to allow my tormentor to access my phone and subsequently my Facebook, my emails, all that shit. And then I remembered the real code in my phone, 7639, which on a numerical p- keypad, actually I, I said the number wrong, but it spells out Remy as in Rembrandt, right? Remy as in Rembrandt? Yeah. That's what they used to say short for Rembrandt, right? Is Remy? But it's R-E-M-B. The thought then occurred to my drug-addled mind, don't give her that number. Number? Number. What does it say? Number. I just fucked it up. They eventually got bored of toying with me and driving me into a depressive and pretty dark trip as they constantly berated my self-esteem with personal remarks and left to go fool around in the other room. I then sat there having a terrible trip. I was cold in the middle of the room, wishing I was home. They didn't even give me a couch to sleep on. I was on the floor with no blankets in the middle of winter with no heating. I was alone. I could hear my mate and this chick going at it in the next room. I allowed myself to fall from my sitting position in the middle of the room onto my back, and suddenly the carpet felt like snow. Looking around, I saw that it was snow, And when I looked up at the ceiling, the ceiling was gone, replaced by a starry night on all sides. And I appeared to be surrounded by gnarled dead trees and I could feel light snow falling on my face, my hands, and as I lay in the snow looking upwards. I felt something gently bite my leg and then it seemed to drag me. I felt as if I was being dragged through the snow. The trees moved out of view 
And when all was still again, I saw that it was kind of a dugout under the roots of what seemed to be a huge tree. I sat up and saw Rembrandt, my old dog. He curled up around me and I felt warm. I cried. Pretty shamelessly. I've never had such a crazy trip before. In fact, I've never had a trip that vivid before. And I stayed there all night for what seemed like hours until I fell asleep and woke up in the middle of John's living room. The following morning, the depressing sense of loneliness I'd been fighting since I had broken up with my girlfriend had completely gone. And I had never felt happier. It was such a strange, rapid change of mood. So also of worthy note, and maybe even the strangest of all, was the commute home that following morning. I saw so many people out in the city walking German Shepherds. They are a rare breed in this part too. I still own one to this day. His name is Kane. But to see so many German Shepherds out on the streets of Melbourne, I mean, I didn't count it, but I'd hate to throw a number out there. But if I had to, I'd say there was 15 of them. And on Facebook, the few friends who I had who owned German Shepherds all seemed to post pictures of their Shepherds that day. So I probably saw another four or five on the Facebook timeline too. A German shepherd synchronicity, if you will. The crazy thing is that everything like this happens to me involves dogs. I love dogs and for some reason dogs seem to love me most of the time. And I'm known as the crazy dog guy among many friends and family for the fact that he pretty much is followed by dogs. So anyways, he's got a lot of stories like that. Not No more involving LSD, but dogs, wolves, etc. are a common hallucination when he takes hallucinogens. Always dogs, man. So he's sorry for the super long story, but it's uh, it's cool to hear it, man. I, I feel sorry for you about that bad trip. I, I do mean, feel sorry for you. mean people. I imagine no, that. No. Yeah, this, is, this one's for your buddy. Douchebag! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By no agenda. Yeah. No, that's bullshit, man. Fuck that guy. Yeah. That's brutal, eh? So he says, uh, keep up the good work, guys. Your show is insanely good. That's from Michael. So thanks for that. Sorry about the bad trip, but you know what? It sounds like he came out of it good. He's in a better mood. He saw his German Shepherds. His dog kind of like came to the rescue. No doubt. Hey. No, no. no. It, it's not a synchronicity, but. Well, all the German Shepherds that he saw that day? No, uh, I think it's just choosing. You're hard. Choosing to see. Really? Yeah. Ooh. What if they all were connected to his, his dog, right? And they all came out to support him. Support him? Yeah. Like, uh, what do you mean? Well, like they all like led their owners to the area where he would be, you know, driving by. Is that too mm. out there for you? You know, I have <laughs> actually heard of this before. Have you, have you heard? I remember when I was a kid hearing the legend of a German Shepherd. He used to just travel down to town. <laughs> Is that what you do the whole time? <laughs> do you know what it is? Is that the little hobo? Yeah. <laughs> Very funny. That was not bad. On the fly. <sighs> yeah, that was pretty funny. You got any spam? Uh, yeah. So you ate the spam? I'm fucking I, hungry. Oh my God. I okay. Well, I actually, no, no, tonight. hang on. Hang, oh, you got one there? I do. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty hungry too. You fried that good. shit up. Yeah. Send more spam. Okay. Okay. I'm going to read out an email from Harold. He sent I was the spam. on the spam <laughs> website. There's all kinds of different kinds. There's hickory smoked. Really? Okay. You ready for this? He's got Shoot. a synchronicity that might involve all of us. This is Harold from Florida. He says, rate this one. And this is for real. You guys got the spam from me because you were saying spam gram, right? 
I sent you guys the spam. Then you just found out that that Mist in History class was using a similar icon from the Moya from Easter Island for their podcast, right? This was because the guy who does your newsletter, he was talking about Justin, Justin was looking for the history of spam. Mist in History had done a podcast about spam, the delicious meat in a can. The podcast was released on September 24th, 2014. This was when my wife bought the spam and I sent it to you guys the day after. I remember this because we bought a new car on this day. I did not even know about this podcast till you spoke about it on your last podcast. So you found out about this other podcast using the Moai from Easter Island, just like your podcast by me sending you spam on the day that the Mist in History podcast put out a podcast about spam. What the f- he says, Darren, this involves you. It's got to be, it's got to be high on this one. Synchronicity 9.5 is not a 9.9. This really happened. Synchronicity. Oh, fuck. That's a gooder. That's pretty good. eh? It came out on the same day he bought the spam and sent it the day before he sent it to us. Nine. Really? Point four two. Really? That's that's pretty. That's a that'll be tough to beat. If that all lines up, that's incredible. Really? Wow. So if it involves you, you definitely have a soft spot for the synchro. No, it's just an incredible synchronicity. Really? Eh? Okay. His wife bought the spam on the same day that the podcast yeah. about spam came out. That Justin listened to. That when he searched, had the same Moai as Grimerica show. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Eh? The odds of that happening. Billion? I wonder if they know about our show. You should. Well, that's the thing. It could still just be simple plagiarism, in which case it's a four. No, it's not. who played them don't plagiarized touch my foot. us? I don't think that's the case. You should tweet him, tweet him or something. Tweet him. I should pick. tweet him. Yeah. I ripped us off. Huh? Well, so hey, what if what if we found out that they actually made that logo the same day that RPJ sent his artwork to the, to us? If that happened. I'll suck your dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to research it then. Somebody else has got to do it. <laughs> That's my thoughts on the odds of that. All right. Well, I guess we should just get into our interview here with Robert Sully, Sully the Fourth. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that's a good note to end on, I suppose. A good synchro. Uh, Sully. Well, you guys know Sully. Not much uh, more to say about that. Cinema, cinema symbolism. So there's some pretty cinema, crazy stuff in here. Right? All kinds of different symbolism. He's That's just one of these knowledgeable guys, right? Like how he keeps it all uh, in there. I don't know. Like, uh, sounds like Ray Romano. You think so? Big time. So Not anymore. I think he could get voice work. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, he's a Freemason and he's a theologian. and Then I'll get that 33rd degree. Antiquarian. Author, researcher, yeah. All around good guy. Yeah. Enjoy the chat, guys. Uh, We'll see you when we see you in the outro.
Okay, guys, uh, in Grand America tonight, we are re-welcoming. Uh, somebody's already stamped his passport once, which is a rare thing. I think this is only probably the, the second return guest we've had. Uh, but we've got uh, Robert W. Sullivan IV back to talk about his new book. Uh, but first, um, the grumpy Graham Dunlop. How's it going tonight, buddy? Oh, that's a good one. Hey, I'm not doing too bad, considering the... I just found out I have bronchitis, I think, so we'll try and struggle through this. I'm a little tired, but I'm excited because this is going to be a fun episode. We're going to be talking uh, cinema symbolism with uh, Robert Sullivan, who was here talking about uh, the Royal Arch of Enoch before, which was fascinating, one of those episodes I learned a ton about. But this is more about pop culture, and if you've ever wondered about those movies like Star Wars or The Matrix or Lord of the Rings, if you ever wondered about <clears throat> what the symbol symbolism is and you know, whether that comes from, you know, numerological or astrological or mythological, alchemical, Kabbalistic, whatever that is, Robert's dug to the, to the depths of this uh, in his new book, Cinema Symbolism, A Guide to Esoteric Imagery in Popular Movies. So we're looking forward to a fun episode of learning all kinds of crazy stuff. Welcome to Gramerica again, Robert. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, it's great to be back with you here on Gramerica. Thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. This is one where Darren and I were talking about how fun it'll be because uh, Darren's a bit of a movie buff himself, and <clears throat> I love sure. all the all the ancient uh, symbolism and all that. And I've been wanting to read more, you know, kind of Jungian type uh, type writing. So uh, this is good. What 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 is your? I want to start off with like so you're talking about symbolism in all of our or a lot of our popular movies. So what is the message here that you want to get across? I kind of want to tease people a bit with like the higher level sort of message about your book. Well, well, what, what, what the book was born out of was really the sort of the last chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch, where I sort of delved into like Masonic, Enochian, solar themes going on in movies. And, and I, I, you know, in some movies it was really, you know, I, I had studied this, you know, esoterica, the occult, like you said, Jungian psychology, mythology, numerology, astrology. And there were some movies that just really stood out with it. Okay. Um, you know, you know, and this, this was something I tied into the final chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch. Like, you know, for example, the, the final, or excuse me, the first, um, it, it's the final chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch book. Um, it's called So Dark the Con a Man was the title of the chapter. It's the last chapter that, of course, it comes out of the Da Vinci Code. But um, it's like the first national treasure movie, which is a retelling of the Royal Arch of Enoch Masonic ritual. And just some of this stuff was just appearing. I, I just, you know, noticed it. And I, it, it, it was, oh, it came to the point where it was, it was obvious to me this was not a coincidence that this material was being intentionally placed there. So, you know, it was twofold in writing cinema symbolism. One was to point it out and really, you know, kind of point out this, you know, really hidden um, symbolism that sort of veiled this underlying theme and mythology and numerology and, you know, arcana that was going on in these movies. Um, there's numerous reasons we could suggest as to why this be, is being done. Um, the, the, the overarching answer is, um, the most general answer I, I can probably give is, it's, it's to me, it's when these guys, when these movie makers and producers and directors are doing this, it's sort of embedding their, their movies with this, um, ancient mythology, um, that, you know, it's really, it's really, tra it's really transforming the film into mythology is what it is by putting this, you know, the Egyptian symbolism in and the, the Osirian, you know, Egyptian legends and the, you know, numinous folklore and things like that. Um, and that's really what the book was about, was pointing out this material and what, the, you know, the movies are what they are, but underneath the celluloid, 
um, was sort of this other story going on. And it's like you said at the beginning is, you know, some of it's Kabbalistic, some of it's alchemical, some of it's Freemasonic. Um, and that was very interesting to me. And like I said, it was, it was the final chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch book. And I had seen this in other movies. So rather than just, you know, I couldn't keep writing, you know, in the Royal Arch. I mean, the chapter would have gone on forever. So I, when I got done the Royal Arch, I just continued on with this, um, this new book, this, this cinema symbolism. And, and what, one of the other things I wanted to talk about in the book was, you know, there is sort of this, you know, element in Hollywood that is exploitative, um, salacious. So some of this stuff, you know, you know, you know, is put in there for sensationalist purposes. I mean, there's little question about that, but then I also delved into the idea of Carl Gustav Jung, the collective and conscious, how the camera collects everything or, or films, everything, excuse me. And how, um, certain things are just so embedded in our, um, you know, subconscious psyche that we can't avoid it. Um, and it appears that some of this stuff is appearing, whether the director wants it to or not. Right. Um, right. And I cite, you know, and I cite to a couple cases where, um, you know, to me, the director didn't know about the material, but there it is in the film. So you have this sort of three-way tug of war going on, where I do believe it's intentionally placed, but it's sort of um, like embedding the film with ancient, myth- you know, with these ancient legends and symbols to transform the film into mythology. And it's the first word of the sentence of the book is movies are the new mythology. Um, and that was really the overarching theme of the uh, book as it were. Right. Okay. So you just answered the questions I was about to ask you is whether it was kind of both or intentional from the movie producers slash directors, and also some sort of uh, manifestation from our collective consciousness or unconscious or whatever. And then, uh, so the other thing that's interesting is, so what you're saying is that this movie industry or this part of our pop culture is like a new media for mythology, whereas in the past it would have been, you know, written down somewhere maybe or passed along verbally or, or in some other sort of, <clears throat> some other way towards the masses. Now we have this, like, this easy route of, of spreading the, the myth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the movie-making industry, I mean, let's be brutally honest, um, the movie-making industry is a billion-dollar um, industry. It's, it's a very, um, you know, powerful source. Um, it's certainly influential on material culture. And, um, yeah, I mean, they're mythology-making. It's exactly what they're doing, and they're, they're drawing on ancient mythology as well. Some of it is just the same story repackaged um, over and over again you know, with different names and, and different themes, but, you know, you know, some of the themes repeat themselves with different characters. Um, you know, I talk about, you know, the, 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 you know, and this again ties into Carl Gustav Young, but it also talks into the works of people like Joseph Campbell, um, and the monomyth. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and, and, you know, the hero with a thousand faces and that's exactly it. It, it is the hero with a thousand faces. You can call this guy, the sun, you can call it Horace, you can call it James Bond, Harry Potter, Neo, Luke Skywalker, uh-huh. um, whatever you want. It's, Frodo. it's the same. Yeah, it's the Frodo Baggins. It's the same story over and over again. I mean, it's tweaked, of course, um, and, you know, different elements appear and things like that. But you will definitely find these underlying themes in a lot of these uh, Hollywood's biggest blockbusters. Um, so I delve into that aspect of well with uh, Joseph Campbell, certainly the influence. I mean, and that's no state secret. Um, Lucas has said on numerous occasions um, that he was, you know, heavy into Joseph Campbell. Um, and, and you often, you always find this, um, you know, you know, sort of, you know, I, I've been asked this before. It's all oh, these guys, you know, you, you know, some of these guys may not be aware of this. That's bull. I mean, you, you research all these guys, whether it be the, the guys who wrote the books, 
the directors, the filmmakers, these guys have some sort of rub with the esoteric world in some way or are interested in it. Um, you know, you have Manly P. Hall's Philosophical Research Society, a stone's throw oh, yeah. from, the, you know, from the Hollywood making industry, for God's <laughs> sakes, literally a stone's throw. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these guys, I don't buy into it. Oh, these guys are just, you know, getting lucky or anything like that. I mean, these guys know what they're doing. I mean, especially when you're dealing with some real masters out there, um, you know, like the Lucases, um, like the Wachowski brothers, or I should say siblings at this point. Um, uh, uh, who's the other one? Oh, the Darren Aronofsky. He, he, he really, he really goes overboard, um, in some of his movies. So yeah, I mean, the, the material is definitely out embedded. I mean, it's intentionally placed and it's in these movies. And, um, like I said, it was, it was, it was born out of this last chapter of the Royal Arch of Enoch, where I kind of brought that book up to speed and thought, okay, well, we've explored all this ancient Masonic history and legends and lore that's end on like masonry in Hollywood and talk about things like national treasure and some of the solar motifs and films and things like that. And like I said, there was more stuff I wanted to talk about, but of course the chapter couldn't go on. So, uh, cinema symbolism was born and, uh, um, recently released. And, um, like I said, uh, you know, I'm real happy with the way it came out. In fact, uh, I'm so happy with the way it came out. I'm actually writing cinema symbolism too right now. It's sequel um, because there was even more movies I wanted to talk about, but I had to excise them out. Otherwise, uh, cinema symbolism would have gone on forever. Wow. So do you know, did you notice any of new and up and coming movie makers that are sort of following uh, the footsteps and some of the, the older, more prominent ones at all through your research? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would definitely say, you know, I mean, you got the guys, I guess. I mean, you could even find this stuff, um, you know, going back, you know, The Wizard of Oz has this material, The Adventures of Robin Hood, which has a lot of, you know, Legends of the Green Man, um, a lot of tarot card imagery. Um, but, yeah, and then you get into Lucas, Zemeckis, um, Stanley Kubrick, certainly with The Shining. Um, you know, you get into symbolism with that. But, again, you know, modern day, the Wachowskis with The Matrix, I mean, which is just, you know, the Gnostic religion, you know, on screen, um, Aaron, Aronofsky's movies, especially black Swan is very alchemical. A lot of Jungian tarot card imagery, um, tarot embodiment with a lot of their characters. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, I mean, you go to the seventies, I'm finding this with the horror filmmaker, Dario Argenta, um, with Suspiria, again, a lot of tarot card, um, iconography going on in that. Um, you know, very subliminal, subliminally placed. Um, it's, it's not noticeable. It's not someone flashing a tarot card on screen or anything like that. Although you will occasionally find that in film. Um, I think of the James Bond live and let die movie. And I have a whole chapter on James Bond. That's very esoteric as well. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, you, you will find this in the older movies. You will find this in the movies of the sixties. You'll find this, you'll, you'll find it in all genres. I mean, you'll find it in science fiction. You'll find it in chick flicks. You'll find it in comedies. Um, you know, you'll find it in action films. Um, it, it really, you know, it's, it's really overarching. It, it seems to be everywhere. And, um, you, you read cinema symbolism. I delve into movies, you know, it's every slate of movies in there. I mean, I don't think I, I mean, I think I touched on a lot of genres in that book. And, uh, again, it's something I'm continuing on with, uh, cinema symbolism too. Hmm. So, do you have uh, so obviously you've been looking into all these movies? Um, do you have like uh, what's your favorite one? What's or what's oh, one that like uh, maybe the one that maybe caught you off guard? Boy, that's a, that's that there's there's a lot of them. Um, I, I guess I guess I really I, I really like the um, a lot of the stuff going on with um, L. Frank Baum in The Wizard of Oz that has multi layers of symbolism on it. 
um, the, the, politi- the political allegory, a lot of people may be aware of that. But then there's this whole Gnostic initiation into the mystery tradition beneath the surface in that. Um, you'll also find that in Alice in Wonderland. I definitely would say the Back to the Future trilogy um, stood out. I mean, you know, that has a lot of Egyptian iconography in it, a lot of solar iconography, very well concealed, um, not on its surface, but if you peel it away, it does turn up. Um, and then I would say another one that is a movie that is just so overwrought with symbolism, I actually had to incise it in half, um, and I delved into the Jungian sort of psychological tarot card um, iconography or symbolism, I guess is the best word, with Black Swan. Um, but there's a whole alchemical story with that as well going on. Um, and I was going to put it in cinema symbolism, but it, it didn't mesh. It just didn't gel. Um, you had to tell the same story twice almost. So I excised out the, um, I cut out the uh, alchemical storyline and uh, or underlying symbology. That's going in cinema symbolism too. Um, yeah, uh, really a lot going on in that movie. Um, the Back to the Future trilogy, um, the, the James Bond material with Ian Fleming, I really like that. The Exorcist. Um, a lot of Gnostic uh, themes of uh, Ascensio and apotheosis going on in that, um, you know, with Karis and the little girl. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and the Omen, the Omen trilogy, which has a very, a very veiled, very well concealed astrological motifs going on. Um, and you, you will find this often um, with, with, with these movies that involve the devil or the de- or demons or demons from hell. Um, you know, they, they seem to come out when, when it's winter or the winter months when the sun is in death in decay in the Northern Hemisphere. Filmmakers really love to play around with this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th- those are just a couple of the chapters <clears throat> that uh, I delved into. But, yeah, I guess the Back to the Future movies, I, I, you know, it really was one I was really proud of. Um, some of the work that I'm writing right now with The Shining, um, some of the alchemical um, repeating nature of that movie uh, is really coming out. Uh, the Dario Argenta, um, uh, Suspiria has a, has a lot going on in it. Um, but yeah, back to the future, wizard of Oz. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, I don't know if I could really say which one's my favorite, but, um, I, I really had, you know, you know, writing the book, writing cinema symbolism in writing, it, I had to go watch all these, uh, you know, movies again, which, you know, you know, boohoo me. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, you know, just sit down with a legal pad and, uh, you know, my research is watching movies. So, uh, can't beat that. And, uh, you know, I had a great time writing it and I had a great time researching it. And basically, you know, you took, took the 20 years that I uh, put into the Royal Arch and turned it on Hollywood for uh, yeah, lack yeah. of a better word. So speaking yeah. of Back to the Future, then can you get into some of the some of the symbolism itself? Get into yeah, yeah, minutia for that one specifically. Let's say yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you really have a lot going on in this. Um, you have to be familiar with a lot of Egyptian mythology, um, <laughs> which I delve into the Osirian cycle, the death and resurrection of uh, Osiris, who is the father figure. Then you have the solar child Horus. I mean, of course, this would be the McFly family, um, you know, who, you know, Osiris is killed and resurrected, of course. Um, George McFly, who would be the Osiris um, comparative figure, he's killed and resurrected in part two. Um, the enemy of the McFlies is Biff Tannen. And of course, the enemy of Osiris, Horus and Isis was uh, Typhon. So you have the play on the name Tannen with Typhon. Um, you have, of course, the McFlies is the Sun family living in Lion Estates, which is Leo the Lion, which is the sole house of the Sun. Um, and then, of course, you have Brown. I mean, you know, you, you just it just never ends with with this, with this movie. Um, you have Brown, who is sort of the Hermes Trismegistus figure, the wizard. But um, you you have uh, the number five uh, always hovers around him. 
November 5th, 1955. This corresponds with the uh, fifth card of the tarot called the Hierophant. If you read the Egyptian um, interpretation of this card, um, the Hierophant is the master of space-time and is the only person who can manipulate space-time. Thus, Brown is surrounded with the number five. Um, and of course, I mean, you have just a lot of real subtle imagery going on in that movie. The, I mean, you know, Back to the Future, the opening of the movie is the end of the movie um, with the time pieces uh, where, where it opens on, on uh, it opens with uh, Doc Brown's um, little, little house with all the time clocks, the clocks. And uh, you'll see the little man hanging off the uh, minute hand. And this, of course, happens at the end. Then you'll see the little wino lifting the bottle up. And, of course, Marty meets the wino at the end when he comes back. And then you'll, you'll hear the ad click on on Doc Brown's uh, alarm clock uh, for Statler Toyota. And, of course, that's the car dealership that hovers throughout the entire movie trilogy. Um, you know, this is the car that Marty gets it. He gets the 4 by 4 at the end. It's from Statler Toyota dealership. Um, this the Toyota dealership sits across. And this is another thing Zemeckis really screws around with is the buildings in 1985 will have a Kabbalistic, dualistic meaning in the future and in 1885. Um, and, you know, Marty, when he goes back in time to 1885, he gets the, the car from Statler Toyota dealership. When he walks into Hill Valley of 1885, the first thing he sees is welcome. It's a, a sign for uh, Statler horse trading. He, the, the, the ancestor's the horse trader. Of course, he's the car dealer in the future. So you'll find that going on. And then, of course, the whole thing with the sun chariot, um, a horse would be, would be Marty. Of course, Isis would be the uh, would be Lorraine would be sort of the virgin mother mother character who confuses Horus with Isis. Of course, when Marty goes back in time, she should fall in love with Osiris. She falls in love with Horus. And of course, Horus was comparatively Apollo or the sun god. And of course, the sun god rides around in the solar chariot. This is the DeLorean, um, and this is invested with um, solar solar symbolism. Um, the, the 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 sun chariot has to hit 88 miles an hour. And of course, the, we're told that the this lightning's going to strike the strike the clock tower um, at 10:04. This is a very veiled reference to the date of October 4th, which is the 277th year of the solar calendar. Means there are 88 solar days left. This is why the sun chariot has to hit 88 miles to spit fire, manipulate time, become the sun, sun chariot of Apollo or Horus. Um, I mean, so just you know, I mean, it never ends with with, with this one. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on. I'm just scratching the surface with some <laughs> with some of this material. But um, the first one, really, it, when, when when I when when these movies are usually in trilogies, usually the first movie has the most in it. Um, the second one does too, and the third one plays around with it a little bit too. Same thing with the Matrix movies. The first one's really overloaded. Second and third have some, but yeah, Back to the Future just is really the complete retelling of the Egyptian Osirian cycle from start to finish. Um, uh, you know, you know, uh, I mean, and I really break it down in the book much more than I'm doing here. I get much more into the Egyptian mythology. Um, I don't, you know, I, I could spend literally the next two hours just going over this alone, but, uh, I've given you a taste of it. Um, and you know, back, back to the future was really a fun movie for me to analyze because, um, that's a movie where you really wouldn't expect to find it. Um, but is, you know, you know, that's always, that's often the case is the movies you don't expect to see it in are the ones that have the most of it. Um, and, and the Back to the Future trilogy, all three of them are just really overloaded with this esoteric, solar, astrological, uh, Egyptian symbolism. Huh. So, Do we see that number 88 pop up in any other movies? Is that like yeah, cross genres? And... Oh, yeah, sure. Um, 
it has different meaning. I, I talk about it in the book. Absolutely. Um, um, in, in Greek gematria, um, the number 888 is actually the equivalent of Jesus Christ. Um, and I mentioned this in the book, and it's actually the first chapter of the book. It comes a few, it, it, I think the Back to the Future chapters four, um, and the first chapter is The Exorcist. Um, and yeah, um, it's in the scene in The Exorcist where, um, where William Friedkin, um, who directed The Exorcist, replicates the Last Supper painting of Da Vinci. And it's the scene where the mother is sitting around at the Behringer Clinic at the head of the table is Jesus. I mean, her name is Chris, echoing Christ. Um, and she's surrounded by the four, four groups of three, the 12 apostles. And this is what, what he's symbolically implanting in your head is that a spiritual cure is needed uh, for the little girl. Um, and, and this is the scene where the doctor, I mean, it looks just like the, the Last Supper painting. I mean, she's sitting at the head and you've got the four groups of three with the doctors um, around her as the 12. And um, the doctor, the, the one doctor says, well, there's nothing we can do here. And she, she makes a comment. I'll keep it user clean. She says something to the effect of 88 doctors here. Um, and again, you know, the, here's the number 88 again. And in this case, um, in this context, it would be um, the, the numerica designation of Jesus Christ. She's symbolically invoking Jesus, um, who, whose name in Gikramatria is um, 888, or would be the numer numerical equivalent. So you have the invoking of Jesus Christ there in this, in this scene that is replicating the Da Vinci last painting. Um, and what, what Friedkin is really symbolically showing you there on the screen is that a uh, spiritual cure is needed for the little girl. But um, it, it's very well, very well veiled in, in The Exorcist. But um, it's 88 again, and um, it's uh, used in a different context, but uh, of definite symbolic importance. Mm. So here's one that surprised me a little bit, and it's my could be my all-time favorite movie, but Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So th oh, sure, talk sure. to me about that one a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm glad you mentioned this one. This was, um, th this was something that I actually, um, talked, talked about in, um, this, this comes straight out of the first book, the Royal Arch of Enoch book, where in, in the final chapter, this was one of the movies I took on was Excalibur was, which the Arthurian legend. This yeah. was a movie that came out by John Borman. Um, make a long story real short. Um, the Arthurian ledger, the legend of King Arthur, is again a solar allegory. King Arthur is the sun, the knights are the twelve houses of the zodiac, his helpers. He sits at the round table, you know, the wheel of the zodiac. Um, I mean, you know, you have Lancelot, who's Leo. Leo is ruled by the sun. That's why it's his favorite knight. Um, you know, you know, you have the sacred feminine there. You know, the, the queen Guinevere, the white queen. Um, you know, Merlin, Hermes Trismegistus. At any rate. Um, if you want to see the astrological solar symbols of Excalibur, or excuse me, of King Arthur, the best movie is Excalibur. Um, that, that really has, that's really the movie with the best astrological symbolism in it um, for the Excalibur, for the Arthurian legend. At any rate, um, you, you'll find this solar symbology rubbing off on, um, on the, the Holy Grail story uh, with, with Monty Python. Um, and this really shouldn't be a surprise. Um, you, you find Terry Gilliam, um, who was a member of the Python troop was was very um, um, into Gnosticism. You, you'll find Gnostic themes in Twelve Monkeys, Brazil, um, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which has a lot of Masonic themes in it. These, a couple of these movies I'm picking one in cinema symbolism too. Um, but yeah, Ho Holy Grail. I mean, you have King Arthur as the Sun. Um, you know, with Patsy. I mean, look at the symbol in their tunic. Um, look no further than that if you want to see who they symbolize. Um, you have some of the astrological themes going on with the knights. You have, um, 
you know, Lancelot would be um, Scorpio, which would be uh, in the old days was ruled by Mars, which is the god of war. And this is why all Lancelot wants to do is run around killing people. Um, you have the, you know, sun versus the black night, night versus darkness. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you'll have a lot of astrological um, motifs turning up in the Holy Grail, uh, Monty Python movie. And again, a lot of the Python troupe, most, most notably Gilliam. I mean, you have the guy who's um, the wizard, the Hermes Trismegistus wizard is Bedivere. Um, and of course, the symbol for him is the Kabbalistic tree of life on his tunic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you'll find it in, uh, in Holy Grail as well. Sort of the Arthurian solar um, legend is definitely visible in Excalibur. Um, and, you know, it even rubs off on the Monty Python movie. Um, you know, and I, I, it's, uh, I think that's chapter three in the Cinema Symbolism book. Um, and again, you'll find, uh, you know, it, it, it means the same thing. You'll find, you know, when they, when they come out of winter, they meet um, Tim, the, the enchanter. Yeah, who, you know, the, him, yeah. Right, right. You have, you know, you know, after the, you know, the vernal equinox, you have Aries, the ram is the first sign. They meet Tim, who has the ram's horns. Aries is a fire sign. Tim is fire obsessed. Um, and of course, it's under, um, this is the time of Easter, the vernal equinox. And of course, this is the worship of the rabbit, um, you know, the sacred hare. And of course, so where does he lead him to? The sacred rabbit, the, 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 you know, the evil little rabbit. Um, this all ties into the vernal equinox symbology. Um, you know, it's astro astrological, astronomical. So yeah, you'll, you'll find it in uh, Holy Grail as well. Uh -huh. So that, that made me think about, uh, I've been hearing a lot about this lately how the ancient writings and um, I've heard a couple other people talk about it on podcasts and some of our religious texts and some of our mythologies is really more um, allegory or metaphorical. I mean, in your first chapter, you oh my goodness, have an intro. Yeah. I, I read the intro to, to your book on Kindle before Kindle tricked me. I, I thought I had the whole book in there, but I guess it was just a, the free first half of the book or first bit of the book. So I, I made it through that and did, you, you did, sort of did, lay did, out a foundation for, for the book, right? Which, which book Royal Archer, uh, cinema symbolism. cinema symbolism. Yeah. You'll get like the first, like 15 pages for free, I think. Right. Um, yeah. You know, Kindle, um, that's like a little the free whole thing until today. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. You did for some reason. Oh, you should be able to put, you should be able to buy it. No problem. Yeah, I mean, it's only, it's, it, yeah, it's it's on sale now. By the way, it just went on sale um, from nine ninety nine to five ninety nine. So it's on sale. You can definitely buy it, download it. Yeah, you get the free sample. Um, um, I think it's like the first fifteen twenty pages of each, of each book or so. But yeah, I mean, uh, what was the question about astrology? But but the uh, allegory with with the religion and stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, was, and, the, and the metaphor metaphors that are, you know, the people are starting to come out more that more from what I'm hearing, anyways, and and talking about it being more about that than some sort of actual events, right? Oh, oh, sure, sure. This was something I took on in uh, Royal Arch of Enoch, um, which, is, uh, which, which, which is chapter three. Um, in, in chapter three, I get into a whole comparative religion, um, at, you, know, you know, right up about, you know, you know with, with the sun god, Jesus, you know, how, how Jesus parallels the journey of the sun, um, and it's all symbolic. It's not really historic. And, and you know, how this ties into the Masonic ritual. Um, and yeah, I mean, you, you will find, um, you know, these sort of motifs. And, you know, I mean, I can talk about it in the context of the Royal Arch where, you know, I mean, it's the same sort of thing. We have King. I mean, I'll just go into it briefly and then I'll tie it into the movie, some of the movie stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have like the whole idea of like Jesus being the sun God. 
Um, and of course, son of God, son of God in English, you know, you, you subtract the U with the O and, you know, there you have it. Um, but of course, it only works in English. But you I mean, you have Jesus with the 12 houses of the Zodiac or the 12 apostles, the virgin birth is, you know, the, the constellation Virgo rising with the sun on the morning of December 25th. This is when the annual sun is born of the virgin, the constellation Virgo, things like that. I mean, you have all the, the, the Zodiacs. The 12 apostles correspond with, with all, all, all the uh, 12 houses. You have the whole thing with the procession of the equinoxes, with Moses being the sun in the house of Ares the ram, but then you have the Piscean age, um, you know, which is the worship of the sun in the house of Pisces. This would be why Jesus is always surrounded by fish and water, um, you know, with Pisces the fish, and, you know, Pisces is a water sign. Of course, the next sign up would be Aquarius. Um, and this ties into the Masonic ritual. It's, it's the concept of the death and resurrected sun man, which in the third degree is Hiram Abiff, who's killed and resurrected. Alas, has 12 people going looking for him. I wonder what that represents. So, I mean, you'll, you'll find this again over, and you know, you'll find the concept of the death, the, the, the solar hero, um, you know, Neo in the Matrix, who's killed and resurrected. You have Luke Skywalker, who does battle with the Dark Lords. The name Luke Skywalker, the name Luke is from the Latin Lux meaning light, what light skywalks across the day, you know, across the, the, you know, the sun, um, you know, you have, um, Jesus Christ, James Cole, um, 12 monkeys. I wonder what that represents, who is dead and resurrected at the end of the movie, who wants to save mankind, um, from a deadly virus as the savior of mankind. Um, you know, what other guys who have the initials JC are the savior of man. Let's see. John Connor saves mankind from evil terminators um, John Coffey, who resurrects a dead mouse and dies for the sins of the South in the Green Mile, it never ends. It's the same story over and over again. Um, you know, just just very, very veiled, very planted in our subconscious by these filmmakers. Um, and, you know, it's the whole, you know, you know, you have Frodo Baggins, um, who, who bears the weight of the world and, and you know, goes into the dark land um, to save Middle Earth from the Dark Lord, um, you know, who is Sauron. You know, you know, well, what, what, what does Sauron come from? Well, the name Sauron is a, is a plagiarism of the name Saturn, um, who is the Lord of Death. And Saturn, the reason Saturn is the Lord of Death is it rules the house of Camp Capricorn, when in the Northern Hemisphere, the sun, you know, or the light of the world is in death. This is where, um, you know, this is why Saturn is always associated with death. And Saturn, of course, is the planetary Lord of the Rings. This is why Sauron is the ring, ring master, the master of the one <laughs> ring in middle earth. So, you know, the, the, you know, these guys know all this stuff and they just, it, it's the, it's, it's this mythology, um, the sun God. I mean, this is a very big motif in Hollywood. Um, and you know, it's the same thing in the Bible. It's the, the Christ figure, the solar savior archetype. Um, you know, he turns up in film over and over again. Uh, Darren, you had a question there. <laughs> so, so, but what's the, I, I still kind of can't wrap my head around why they would do all this, right? Why would they hide all these symbols in, in this modern mythology and movie making? Right. It's the same reason that an architect would hide astral alignments and sacred geometry in a building. It, it, it transforms the building into a, a forever memory temple is what it's doing. It, and the, the filmmaker, by doing this in a film, it's doing the same thing. It's transforming a, a film into a piece of mythology. And it's the same sort of thing as with architecture and with astral alignments. They'll put it there, and if you're familiar with it, you'll be able to see it. But they're not going to tell you. Um, that's key. It's only for those who can see it. 
Um, and it's the same thing with these movies. If, if you can see it, you'll find it. Um, and that was one of the motivating factors of writing this book was, you know, it, you'll find it if you look, if you're familiar with the material, you'll be able to see it. Um, and what it's literally doing is transforming movies in, you know, like Star Wars into, you know, I mean, let's be honest, Star Wars is, you know, my generation's greatest piece of mythology. There isn't a person in Generation X who doesn't know this film, um, you know, and they're printing money off this material. Um, and, and literally by by incorporating this arcana in these films, it's transforming celluloid into permanent mythology. Huh. What about John McClane? Uh, I'm not familiar. Die Hard. No, I don't do anything with the Die Hard movies. Yeah, it's funny. Eh? There's a bunch of there's some of them that just that just doesn't seem to apply to, right? Oh no, there's yeah. I mean, not every that, that's a that's a very valid point. Not every movie um, has this material. Um, you know, I mean, the movie not incorporating the stuff does not necessarily make a, make a movie bad per se. Um, the films of Quentin Tarantino are 100% devoid of this material. Um, um, but they're great movies. I mean, who doesn't love Re Reservoir Dogs and Pulp, Pulp Fiction? Um, I mean, you may have a couple archetypes thrown in there, but, um, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, 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 nothing, nothing like what we've been talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, the, you know, you know, the, you know, not every movie has this. And I, I took the maxim. Um, and it's, it was important for me is sort of when in doubt, throw it out. Um, because I've watched numerous movies where I thought I might see something and, uh, you know, there was nothing there. I mean, nothing there whatsoever to it. Right. Um, and I, I really, I really went after the movies, um, that I really could, I was really happy with and satisfied that I could pin this down. Um, and you know, where I was seeing it over and over again, yeah, yeah, um, that, you know, where, 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 where I was beyond the coincidence, you know, point of view, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, so after you've written this book and people, uh, it's in their awareness a little bit more, all the symbolism, all the, the different types of symbolism. And, you know, that kind of starts to affect our collective consciousness. So how do you think that the people becoming more aware of this hidden symbolism and more aware of, you know, the ancient uh, genesis of some of this type of symbolism, how do you think that'll change our, our culture or will it change our culture? Well, I don't know if it'll change your culture, but I think it'll definitely make you more cognizant and more aware of when, what you're watching on screen. Um, and, it, and it may bring another level of an enjoyment um, to the film. I mean, to me, like, you know, I've been asked this question before and I, I say it again here. Um, you know, it's like when I watch a Darren Aronofsky movie, I mean, if I'm just sitting around in a theater or just have something on in the background or something, I'm not, you know, paying attention to it. That's one thing. But, you know, when I, when I do these, you know, when I, when I analyze these films, I literally sit there. I mean, I have to have a, a legal pad in front of me. Um, you know, I mean, I am, I am constantly backtracking, going forward, backwards in the film. Something that could happen earlier could turn up later. Um, and it, it literally, uh, I've said this on, on, on um, other shows, you know, when I watch like a Darren Aronofsky movie, I mean, I feel like I'm playing a symbolic game of chess with Bobby Fischer. I mean, I mean it, it, it's like a challenge. I mean, you know, and I, I think that's part of it as well. You know, yeah, it's like, why do these filmmakers do it? I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. It's, you know, we're going to, it's like a, it's like a treasure hunt almost. We're going to put it in here. Um, find it if you can, you know, outwit me. Um, and, and the truth is I have been outwitted. Um, the, the, when I, when I, when I was doing black Swan, when I was writing black Swan, there was two things I missed, um, that I actually could have put in cinema symbolism. Like I said, I'm doing the, the alchemical yeah, take yeah. on it in cinema symbolism too. 
but I actually missed two two very adroitly concealed things going on um, in Black Swan that I'm putting in cinema symbolism too. So you know, I'm not perfect either. And uh, you know, like I said, these, these these guys are very adroit with this material. And uh, you know, I think I fleshed out a lot of it in uh, cinema symbolism. But um, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe there's some more in there that uh, you know I have to go back and take another look. And like I said, I'm writing cinema symbolism too. Right now, I'm going to do, um, you know, the C.S. Lewis material, Alan Moore, um, some more of the horror stuff with Suspiria, The Shining, um, the, the, the Robin Hood film with Errol Flynn. That has uh, that has very, very well done uh, tarot card archetypes in it. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, like I said, uh, it's something I enjoy doing and um, got to watch these films. That when I when I analyze them, it takes much more than one viewing to pick up on some of this stuff. Yeah, I can imagine. Shouldn't be surprised, really. I mean, it does seem like a lot of these movies had the same plot for like the last decade. They yeah, need, I mean, they you need a new myth book. Yeah, you'll find, um, you know, you'll you'll find some of these themes, you know, kind of repeating themselves with, you know, like the Harry Potter stuff and the Star Wars. I mean, again, it's it ties into the Joseph Campbell mono myth, where, for lack of a better term. Um, if, you know, if, if the hero is a representation of the sun, then the monomyth is sort of the sun's journey. I mean, and, you know, like I said, there are variations to it. I mean, they're not all identical, of course, but, um, you know, you, you will find, you will find themes of, you know, the dark Lord and the wizard helper and, um, you know, you know, some sort of female woman who will come along who can be a trickster, but, you know, you can help out, um, you know, or can be a good guy, but could be also a villain um, so yeah, I mean, you, you'll find these archetypes, um, you know, somewhat repeating themselves, but, um, you know, you know, they do, they do change it around a little bit, but, uh, you know, you know, Star Wars, the C.S. Lewis material, Lord of the Rings, um, you know, you, you'll definitely have in those of the matrix, you know, the, uh, solar archetype, uh, savior figure, no doubt about it. What about yeah, the uh, Matrix? Let's talk yeah, about that. Well, I, okay, okay, yeah. I, no, ahead. I wanted to talk about the Matrix in in the context of uh, it. It seems like there's a bit of a genre that I that is missing from this in, in a way, and maybe it's not applicable to the symbolism you're talking about, but kind of like the alien attack or the you know the alien uh, invasion type movies, right? Like, because it's a lot. There's a lot of movies coming out now with about you know it's kind of the hostile alien theme, right? Is that you see any symbolism in that theme, or do you think that that's uh, that's kind of missing? And then it, that brings us to the Matrix, which really is that, except it's kind of more wrapped around the monomyth. Well, right. Well, what? Well, I'll start with. I'll go back in time with with, with the Matrix. 
with the Matrix films, and especially the first one, this is really the Gnostic religion on screen. That's, that's really the best way for me to describe it. Huh. I mean, for, for, from a Gnostic standpoint, that, that has ev- everything you want in it. I mean, everything. Um, the, 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 the concept, I'll, I'll go back in time a little bit, because this is something that, that, that is an interesting phenomenon, and this definitely happened. Um, and I talk about it in the book, is, is you have the, the, the films of the early Cold War um, you know, where you had the sort of the hostile know-it-all alien um, who's kind, kind of comes down to Earth to teach mankind to stop warmongering. Um, and then you have the alien who comes down to infiltrate society. Um, th- this was the fear of the com- communist intrusion. Um, things like invasion of the body snatcher, where we're all going to be cloned communists. And uh, um, uh, what's the other one? The day the Earth stood still, where Klaatu comes to Earth and says, you know, stop polluting the environment. Stop, you know, uh, you know, engaging in tribal warfare or else, you know, and learn to live in this, you know, peaceful, utopian, you know, kind of communistic society. So you, you have this space, al- the, the, the space alien movies of the 50s and early 60s are sort of um, the aliens are representing of communist Russia invading uh, Eisenhower America, basically, um, and intruding on the wholesome nature of Eisenhower's America. And then you have. The side effect of this, which is the proliferation of nuclear weapons, um, and then you, you get all the mutation movies off of this, where America, in order to defend itself, has to um, build nuclear weapons. And of course, you have the giant, you know, the, the giant crickets that come alive, um, who get exposed to the nuclear waste um, and terrorize America, um, or, you know, or the giant spiders that would be them. Um, and then, and then, of course, the most famous one of all. Um, which is, of course, the the, the, the anxiety of uh, America dropping a nuclear weapon is Godzilla, who is, of course, the American atomic bomb um, that, that bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is why Godzilla only attacks Japan, um, you know, forever and ever. That's all Godzilla's modus operandi was, at least when he was originally created, was to just forever attack Japan um, and keep Japan in a state of suppression. So, So you have... In, in the 50s and 60s, the whole alien genre was sort of this um, fear of communist invasion. And then you had the side effect with the proliferation of nuclear weapons and the fear of what, you know, I mean, believe me, I'm just talking on some of the, um, you know, some of the more famous monster movies. I mean, you got like things like Bride of the Monster, where the guy's going to use atomic energy to build the race of supermen. I mean, echoing Nazi Germany. Then you've got the um, uh, there's a, there's another one, uh, Donovan's Brain. Where you, or the fiend without a face, where you got human, you know, you know, uh, mutated brains running around attacking people. So I, I get into a whole exploit, you know, uh, expose of of the films of the of the, the alien, um, hostile alien movies of the 50s and 60s. Now you have them today, um, but I think some of the meanings lost. Um, I mean, obviously, kind of the Cold War's over, um, nuclear power sort of been harnessed. That feels fear by and large has been put to rest. So you do have the alien, you know, the hostile alien movies like, you know, Independence Day. But it really harkens back to the movies of the 50s and 60s, where it was the birth of the Cold War and the birth of uh, atomic power, for lack of a better word. So that's sort of where that comes from. Um, I get into a whole a whole thing on that in uh, cinema symbolism. Turning to the Matrix. Um, yeah, I mean, my goodness gracious. Um this is the, the, you know, I mean, you know, you have in this, this is really, you know, the whole concept of the Gnostic religion of a person living in the false material world of the Demiurge. This is the lesser God um, and wakes up to the spiritual um, and, 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 you know, you know, has the epiphany, realizes the material world is bogus 
leaves it and then hangs out with this group of people who are into the spiritual, um, know the material world is phony. And of course, I mean, I mean, I'm just describing the movie. I mean, I'm, what I'm describing is the Gnostic religion, but I'm, of course, I'm describing the Matrix movie because they're one and the same thing where you have Neo who knows something's wrong, um, sheds off the material world, um, awakens and, you know, has this sort of epiphany that he's going to be the chosen savior, the solar archetype figure who's going to, um, you know, uh, save mankind from the, the, the phony world of the demiurge and the machines. And of course, in, in the Matrix 2, we're introduced to the architect, who is the lesser god. He's the creator of the false world. And of course, the, the, in, in Gnosticism, you had this character called the demiurge, who's the false god or the lesser god. He has this sort of coterie of, of agents who work for him called the archons. And of course, these are the agents in the movie led by Agent Smith. And then, of course, Neo is the Christ-like savior. He gets on board. I mean, my God, I mean, it, 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 I, I literally, we, I, we could go on and on with this thing forever with, with the Matrix. You have the guy, you know, Morpheus, who is the guy who is sort of the hermit figure, the keeper of the wisdom, who brings more Neo out of the dreamlike state. It's a real dualistic, um, interesting name to give to Morpheus. In mythology, Morpheus is the god of dreams and sleep. Yet it's Morpheus who brings Neo out of the dreamlike state into the real world. Um, and of course, Neo is going to be this Christ-like savior when he's on board the ship, the Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, it says, yeah. you, you, you see the light, the, the, the plate, Mark 311. Um, this is Mark, the biblical verse, Mark 311. Thou art the son of man. All demons bow down before you, announcing Neo as the new, you know, Jesus Christ-like savior. I mean, I mean, he hangs around with the sacred feminine, trinity of all things. Um, so yeah, just, just really an overloaded of, I mean, the whole idea of, this sacred, um, you know, sacred band of people who've shut off the material um, for the spiritual. This, this this is a strain of Gnosticism that comes out of a philosopher named um, Valentinius. So you have the Valentinian strain, but then you've got the Manichaean strain, which is the good versus evil, um, light versus darkness, Neo versus the machines. Um, this is is this is the Jedi versus the Sith, Harry Potter versus Voldemort. You know, again. Um, you know, the whole concept of light versus darkness. So, yeah, I mean, just with the Matrix alone, very Gnostic in nature. I mean, you have in, in, in the, the sequel, one of the ships is called the Gnosis of all things. Um, very Gnostic in nature. I have a whole chapter in the Matrix. Great movies. Um, a lot of very veiled esoteric symbolism going on. The red pill. What does the red pill signify? Well, you have there, 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 there are a couple things there. Um, the idea you have the red and blue pill, um, where the, the blue pill puts you to sleep. Um, you have a Masonic secret society, um, in influence on this, but this also the idea of the red and blue pill, the idea of a blue pill putting you to sleep comes out from a movie that came out in the early eighties called Saturn three, um, which, which was a, a movie about going into outer space. And when you, when you wanted to become unconscious, you took a pill called a blue dreamer. Um, this is carried forward into a movie that came out two years before the matrix called the fifth element, um, which is again, very Gnostic has a lot to do with the sacred feminine saving mankind, where in order to tra travel in outer space, um, you have to be put to sleep. You have to be knocked unconscious. And the stewardesses that do this all wear the blue uniforms. So you'll find that. So of course in the matrix, the blue pill puts you to sleep. The red pill shows you the, the true reality you have in, you know, when Neo goes into the sacred temple, which is the hotel, you have the floor of the, the checkered floor of Freemasonry, the black and white floor, you know, what Manly P. Hall calls the floor of the mysteries. 
Of course, he's offered the blue pill, go back to sleep. The red pill gives you the true Kabbalistic wisdom. Freemasonry, you have the blue lodge, which is sort of the, you know, you know, the introductory level. But, you know, if you really want to see, you know, and Albert Pike talks about this, if you want the real secrets of Freemasonry, you go into the high degrees, what are called the red degrees. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the blue versus red, sort of stay where you are or wake up to the true secrets. In Masonry, this would be the blue lodge versus the high degree. I talk about some of the philosophical, well, I don't talk about, I do talk about a lot of the philosophical differences between the blue lodge and the high degrees in Royal Arch of Enoch. So you have that whole thing going on um, with the red and blue pill. Um, and again, the, 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 the origins of the blue pill putting you to sleep comes from a movie called Saturn Three, um, and, and that's carried forward into a movie called The Fifth Element that came out two years um, before, before The Matrix. But yeah, you definitely have this sort of Gnostic, Freemasonic influence um, going on with the red and blue pills. And of course, he takes the red pill, Neo, and then he turns into Alice in Wonderland, um, literally goes through the mirror, through the looking glass that's a homage to Lewis Carroll, um, and wakes up in Wonderland or the real world. Um, and of course he gets, you know, for his the gnosis, you know, for his awakening, he gets flushed down a toilet where he is then hoisted in cruciform like Jesus towards the light, towards the, the spacecraft, the hovering craft. So, yeah, I mean, you have this whole thing with Neo being the Christ like savior. Um, I mean, and like I said, I'm just literally scratching the surface with some of this stuff going on in the matrix, but, um, yeah, I, I do all three movies in the book and, um, it's a fascinating subject matter. So what about the superhero movies? Like the, uh, like there's a whole now genre of the DC comic and the comic book heroes and all that. Is that kind of devoid of the symbolism? Is it sort of oh, a oh. little bit more surface level kind of stuff? Oh no, you, you definitely have some mythological overtones going on in, in things like Batman and Superman. Um, I, I talk about Superman more in, in cinema symbolism too. Batman, you have a lot of mythology. You have the concept of Bruce Wayne and Batman the, the, the conscious ego versus the shadow self who is Batman. But Batman's an interesting figure because he is his own wisdom provider. Um, the, 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 the Dark Knight, the Batman character, is a master detective, master of gadgets, crime fighter. So he's sort of his own enabler, which is rare. Usually these guys are all assisted by like some sort of hermit-like figure, mm. you know, Obi-Wan, Kenobi, Gandalf, um, you know, Vo uh, Dumbledore, people like that. Batman's devoid of that. Well, um, had, I mean, I know he, uh, he, had he, he has Alfred. What's that? Alfred and Morgan Freeman. He, yeah, but Alfred, Alfred, Alfred is more of an assistant, and so is um, so is uh, Morgan Freeman. And Morgan Freeman's not in the comic books. But then a lot of the um, but a lot of the villains um, come out of mythology. I mean, you have the Lilith female trickster archetype is Catwoman. You have Janus, the Roman double-headed god, um, who is of course Two Face. You've got the Joker, who's, you know, the devil type character. So, yeah, you have that in um, um, Batman. I get into a lot more of the Batman mythology in cinema symbolism. But then, of course, Superman is, again, the Christ-like savior. Um, you know, you know the, the, the character, the only begotten gun, the son sent the planet Earth to save mankind from itself with miraculous powers. Um, in Superman 78 with Christopher Reeves, he resur res resurrects a dead Lois Lane. The one that really has it. Um, is the is the one that just came out with um, more uh, with um, uh, Russell Crowe and uh, Kevin Costner, um, where Superman he 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 constantly is running around saying I'm, I'm 33 years old I've been on Earth 33 years uh -huh. this is of course a reference to Jesus being crucified at 33 Superman is constantly flying around in that movie cruciform in front of the sun um, and again this ties into Jesus being the sun figure 
I mean, and the Russell Crowe character, who is um, Jor-El, the father, I mean, he even says it. He, he even says, he says, you will make them one with the son. Now, I don't know how more obvious you can, you know, get, get with that um, as, as, you know, the, the Christ-like savior, you know, than, than Superman. But yeah, I mean, you know, you, you have the, um, you know, the miraculous, um, you know, savior figure with Superman tying into the Christ-like savior. Um, so yeah, no, superheroes uh, definitely have it. No question about it. So we had we had Robbie Graham on uh, uh, quite a while back on our podcast, and he's got this uh, like a website, and he I think he wrote about the silver screen saucers, right? And his his thing was uh, how all these uh, UFO type movies and and uh, have been influenced by the DOD or the CIA sometimes behind the behind the scenes, and and uh, you know having some sort of script control even. So when you were researching. You're like the, who makes these movies? Did you ever come across any any hidden agendas from the institutions, like the government or intelligence agencies, anything like that? You know, it's interesting you asked me that. I I, I really I, I there there was you know like like things that were planted that you know kind of uh, there's one that really came to mind when I was doing this, and it's something I talk about in cinema symbolism too. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I found any like hidden agenda, but I mean, you will definitely see, I mean, I, I mean, it, it's no state secret. You know, a lot of these movies when they may do go to the military or to the FBI for advisement purposes or, you know, you know, for a helping hand. I mean, that, that's no state secret. Um, I mean, I know, for example, when they did silence of the lambs, um, they involved the, uh, you know, the FBI about training in Quantico and things like that. Um, so, you know, you, you, you will definitely have, I mean, sometimes these, you know, things like the FBI and the CIA, um, you know, will, will will engage a movie maker, you know, to help put a positive spin on something or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you, you, you will find that um, the, the one that's real curious um, and, and, it, and it definitely happened. Uh, it it kind of went by, it kind of went under the wayside um, or, you know, under the radar was I, I, I want to say. And I mean, this is definitely documentable. I mentioned cinema symbolism too. It's it's with the tra- it's the Transformer movie, um, and I want to say it's the second one. Yeah, the one it's with the, the dark one, side of the moon, or it's the one where they fight on top of the pyramids at the end. Okay, um, it, it's that it's that movie, um, and there's a scene in. I think it's the second one. It may be the third one. Um, there's a scene in it towards the end. It's when they're fighting. It's when the two Transformers are fighting on top of the pyramids at Giza the John Turturlio character who is sort of like the man in black, um, the government spook character, he, he gets on the phone with the, the naval ship in the Mediterranean or something. And, and he, he gets on, on, it's a very quick scene. It, it doesn't, there's not much, you can miss it real fast. And he says something to the effect of like, like unleash the secret weapon or break out the thing. And the guy, the, the naval commander says, Oh, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. He says, you know, damn well what I'm talking about. And he gives a code word for it. It's a rail gun on top of the ship. And the guy says, all right, you know, break out the rail gun. And the, the rail gun comes up out of the, the belly of the ship or the bowels of the ship and fires an electromagnetic pulse and hits one of the Transformers fighting on top of the pyramid. Well, it was about six months after, after this, this movie came out that the Navy un- unveiled the rail gun on the ship. I mean, it's the same thing. Um, and, and basically, and I, I even think in the article I read, it said the Navy used um, the Transformer movie to basically announce to the world that this rail gun was on its way um, and was no longer a thing of science fiction. So, I mean, th- there you go. Um, <laughs> there you have uh, the government unveiling uh, a, a real-life science fiction weapon 
to a Transformer movie. Doesn't get any better than that. Sweet. Well, they must have been. Yeah. I bet you they also unveiled uh, secret bases on the dark side of the moon in that movie too. If I don't recall, I think it started on the dark side of the moon. Yeah, it could. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, you know, move mo- movies as prophetic. Um, that you know that that's um, you know, an interesting take. I I don't really delve into it that much, but you will definitely find themes in movies that um, you know, anticipate. Um, things going on. I mean, it's the, the one that I talk about, and we were just talking about the Matrix. I mean, by far and away, and I mean, I can't explain it, um, and I don't even try to, but I mean, you know, I, I, I know that there is this whole subculture of um, 9-11, uh, the 9-11 things turning up oh, in films. You, I want to you ask know, you know, about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, and, you know, I mean, so some of this, I mean, I, I mean, some of this, this, some of this stuff goes back 20 years to the 1980s. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I am 100% convinced some of this is purely coincidence. But the one in the Matrix is the hardest one to write off, um, just because one of the nature of the movie. I mean, you have the whole idea of sort of the death of the false world, reawakening to new consciousness. Right. Um, you know, and, and the Matrix is by far and away the scariest one of all. It's Neo's passport. Um, I mean, it's the whole date. His, Neo Anderson's oh. passport expires on September 11th, 2001. Um, that, that's in the Matrix. That's in the first Matrix his passport, it, it's, it's only shown briefly in the film. It's in the scene where Smith is interrogating Anderson, um, and he's you know, trying to talk him out of being the cyber terrorist. Um, and if it, it, it has two meanings. Um, you, it, it's Neo's birth date, which is September 13th, 1971, which is dualistic. That's the date of the, Rockefeller, uh, the um, Attica prison riot, where the Rockefellers put down the prison riot. So you have the birth of the chosen one on that date who is going to liberate mankind from the prison, like, um, you know, confines that he finds him in. Yet in reality, it was the suppression of a prison riot. So you have that whole dualistic thing going on with the birth date of Neo or Anderson, but then you have his expiration date of the passport, which is, and it's the whole date. It's September 11th, 2001. Um, you know, go figure. I mean, and you know, when did the matrix come out in 1999? So, I mean, you're close to that date. So, I mean, you know, I can't explain it. I don't know where the hell it comes from, but, um, you know, there it is. I mean, and it's there. I mean, I've checked it. You know, it, it's definitely there. It's pretty crazy. Wasn't there something else on a one of the cartoon TV shows? Like, I, I seem to think of it as, like, Family Guy or The Simpsons, where uh, prior to that, there was a, a skit about something flying into the two towers. Do you remember that, Darren? I, I know there was something with that. There's a whole thing on this. I, I don't delve into I mean, I'm a little aware of it. Some yeah. of it I, I can't buy into. I mean, some of it's too far removed. I know right. there's... One on the Simpsons where I think, I think it, it, it was, it was like, it was a, it was $9 was the price and it was in front of the world trade centers and it looked like nine eleven. Then there's another one. Um, oh, there's a couple of them. Um, I, 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 I know I'm aware of the Simpson one. I think there's one in the Terminator in the second Terminator movie. Um, beware of nine eleven. I think it, it said somewhere. Um, but, but I know that I know there's a lot of them out there, but some of them are very far removed and, um, you know, anything from the 1980s or early 90s, you know, to me would have to be almost a coincidence. But the Matrix one, that's a little hard to explain. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So it is it is interesting to me that these these sets of movies that you talk about and the ones that are full of the symbolism are really, they really did well. Like, they're really resonating with, with uh, humanity, obviously. You know, when you talk about Matrix, Star Wars, uh, uh, the uh, Lord of the Rings and all that, like, those are... Those are the big, some of the biggest movies we've ever seen. So it really makes me think that 
there's something deep within us that really resonates with this type of uh, mythology. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, my God, you know, um, I believe these filmmakers are very aware of the collective unconscious. I believe there are certain things that are, we are hooked on. I think they know this. Huh. Um, and I think they are there. I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, let's just, you know, I mean, let, you know, we, we, we could talk about, you know, why they implant this um, symbolism in the movies. Well, let's just look at a base, you know, basically, I mean, they're printing money off this stuff. I mean, you know, the, the movie making industry is, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry. So, you know, you know, to, to think that they're not using this material to print money um, is, is very naive. Um, I mean, they know the power of this material. They know it's very, it, 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 mankind resonates with it. But, but what also has to be borne in mind, and again, this ties into what I was talking about at the beginning of the show, was, you know, you know we have to remember also that these filmmakers, they're, they're subject to this too. I mean, they're, they're human beings also. So the point I'm trying to make is, they, you, know, you know, and I talk about this in the film is, or excuse me, in the book, is, um, you know, the, these guys in, on some levels may be implanting this material and not even being aware of it because right. they're affected by the collective unconscious. That's something that also has to be borne in mind. And that's also a very important element on all this. And like I said, um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to go over, you know, spend two hours talking about it. But just briefly, you know, I, I do document in the book where I know there was a filmmaker who was not familiar with this mystery, you know, this, you know, mystery, you know, this arcana, this esoteric symbolism, yet you'll find it in his film. And, I, and to me, that's just a prime example of, of a filmmaker themselves being influenced by the collective unconscious. Hmm. Wow. So did you, getting personal for a bit here, did, during your, your journey mm -hmm. of, of making this, this book, did you experience yeah. anything, any synchronicities yourself or any, I mean, we, we, we have guest after guest that seem to have had some sort of, uh, strange or synchronistic moment that actually like uh, solidified their path uh, to their latest work, so to say. Well, yes. Yeah. I would say yes to that. Um, it, it goes back to the Royal Arch of Enoch um, book. Um, I, I kind of, I kind of had always planned a book. Um, when I, when I, when I, when I began researching this material, I always had a book book in mind. What, what happened was, in the mid 2000s, I, I created, I mean, this doesn't exist anymore. I created an old MySpace page. And of course, this was 2004, 2005, 2006. So bear in mind, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, none of this existed. Yeah. And I sort of started po posting blogs, photo galleries of some of my research. To make a long story real short, a buddy of mine who was a Freemason saw, the, saw it and said, you know, hey, this is really great research. You know, you know, um, you know, you should write a book about it. And that's like, you know, a cartoon, the light bulb went off over my head. And that's when I really started concentrating on it. So I had that sort of synchronistic event happen. And I, I mean, I do think that was very important. Um, and then again, it was the same sort of thing when I was writing the Royal Arch of Enoch book. Um, you know, it's the same time frame, 2004, 2005, 2006. This was when um, the Da Vinci Code was sort of popular. But then this, this movie came out called National Treasure, which to me personally, I thought was better than Da Vinci Code. But, but what was really striking with, with me was this was probably really the National Treasure movie was really the first movie that really started to kind of like the light bulb went off for me with, with the movie symbolism. Mm. Because when I was watching National Treasure, I realized I was watching a Masonic ritual, that this was the Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial on the big screen, the recovery of the secret treasure vault, you know, the subterranean treasure vault that had all the Masonic treasure in it, which is basically the Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial. So, you know, I thought, okay, 
um, you know, you know, here it is. And, you know, I mean, I mean, again, they're, they're, you know, you, you get into the, the, the second movie with the number 13 turning up again, this ties into Freemasonry. And I talk about this in Royal Arch. So again, you know, I mean, it was like this, this, this like ball started to roll where, you know, I was beginning to see this stuff in movies and I was seeing it on a level that was satisfying that I knew it wasn't a coincidence. And then when I, when I was writing Royal Arch, like I said, I, I wrapped up the last chapter with the Masonic symbolism in movies. But then I, you know, as I was doing that, this other stuff was coming to light with like Back to the Future and Black Swan, which was, had just come out at the time. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it was just like, you know, I got done, you know, it was very synchronistic because I got done writing Royal Arch. The final chapter was the movie stuff. And I continued right off as soon as, as soon as, right, literally right after Royal Arch came out, this would have been August of 2012, I literally started writing cinema symbolism, you know, immediately, um, just continuing on that final chapter with, you know, going forward with the exorcist and the solar symbolisms and, you know, what we've been talking about with the Christ, you know, the savior archetype. Um, and then some cinema symbolism was born. And again, um, you know, you know, again, we talk about synchronicity, um, you know, it's like a, a light bulb and with the cartoon character, I was writing cinema symbolism. I mean, this is all, this is true. I mean, this is how this plays out. Um, I was writing cinema symbolism and I had done, I can't remember the order, but I had done the matrix chapter. Then I had done the star Wars chapter, which was six films. I did all six of them. Mm -hmm. And then I did the Lord, the Lord of the Rings chapter, which was three of them. My original plan at that point was to do the Harry Potter movies, which is eight of them. And I, I remember sitting there literally at my computer screen thinking there is no way if they're just doing this, I mean, you know, this book, I'll be writing this book for another year. So then I thought, okay, you know, let's continue on with cinema symbolism. Let's, let's go into the, the goddess chapter and, and some of the comedies. And what I'll do is I'll excise out the Harry Potter stuff and I'll do cinema symbolism too, which is what I'm writing right now, which I'm going to do the Harry Potter. Like I said, the CS Lewis material, um, you know, the Narnia Chronicles, the um, I'm doing the, the Alan Moore material, you know, with V for Vendetta from hell Watchmen. Um, I, I'm, I'm tackling some more new horror stuff with Suspiria and The Shining. I'm doing the uh, the, the Robin Hood movie with Errol Flynn. Um, the Robin Hood legend is is very is very youngian, very tarot card tarot embodiment. A lot of um, ancient mythology, the Green Man, um, you know, the Green Man of the Woods, um, things like that. So yeah, I mean, this is something um, you know I'm continuing on with, and uh, it seems like you know. Um, you get done one writing book and uh, another, you know, something else comes up. And and speak of the, you know, you know, I talk, you know, we talk about cinema symbolism too. I'm actually writing another book on Freemasonry. I'm also just started writing my first work of fiction. So, um, you know, without the Royal Arch and these movie symbolisms, you know, I got three more books I'm planning. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was definitely like it was meant to be almost, I suppose. Yeah. That's... What about, what about Prometheus? That seems like a no brainer. I, I've not seen it. I have not seen Prometheus. So I, I, I occasionally get asked about movies um, that I have not seen, but I know that that is a Ridley Scott film and it would not surprise me to find stuff in material in that because I know he did alien and the alien movies. Um, again, you know, here we go again with the Christ figure, you know, Ellen Ripley, this time it's the female who is dead and resurrected um, is the savior figure. Um, you know, you have a lot of esoterica going on in the alien movie with the name of the ship, the Nostromo. Um, I talk about what that means. Um, yeah, you know, you know, take, take a look at, uh, I, I do a whole interpretation of alien that's Ridley Scott. So if, it, if, if I've not seen Prometheus, 
but I, um, I, if it, I, I know that's Ridley Scott, so it would come as no surprise to me that there isn't some sort of veiled arcana going on in that one as well. What about Star Trek? Um, Star Trek is, um, again, you know, you know, you have, um, a lot of archetypes in that you have really the Hermes Trismegistus archetype, which is Mr. Spock. Um, this is something I'm talking about in cinema symbolism too, a little bit on the Star Trek. Um, I get into the whole symbolism of the hand gesture, the Vulcan hand gesture, which is the Hebrew letter Shin. Um, that has a lot of Kabbalistic meaning to it. Um, that's something one I'm taking, I'm, excuse me, I'm taking one in cinema symbolism too. So yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll find... Um, this stuff in the small screen as well. Um, in cinema symbolism, I get in some of the material with the X Files, um, some of the veiled art, you know, some of the stuff going on in the background with that show. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's not just you know, it's not just limited to movies. Of course, you'll find you know the work of David Lynch um, with Twin Peaks. That's something also I'm taking on in cinema symbolism too. So yeah, you'll find this Netflix in TV. Again. Yeah, you'll find this in TV shows as well. Wow, it's kind of overwhelming. You find it seems to be just everywhere. Well, it's, it, 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 it's definitely, like I said, you'll find these themes repeating themselves. Um, but like I said, you know, you know, I've looked at a lot of movies where it's not there either. So, um, you know, you know, you, you, you take it and, um, you know, it's some movies have it, some don't. And, uh, you know, you have to always pay attention to, um, you know, you know, the context of what it's being presented in. Um, that that's key to this as well. Speaking of always pay attention, is it like ruined movies for you now? Like, can you can you just hang back and watch a movie, or are you always like on the oh, prowl sure. for some sim- symbology and? Oh no, no, it's like, pad out. Oh no, I could sit back and watch a movie and just enjoy it for what it is, and have it on in the background, or just sit there with a bowl of popcorn, or go watch it in the movie and enjoy it. No, usually when when I'm gonna if I, if if I feel like there's something going on, like I said, I have to usually sit there and like I said, with a notepad and, and remote control and have to go backwards and forwards um, and, you know, see so, something may happen at the end that is different at the beginning. Um, I've encountered this from time to time. So when I'm, in, when I'm analyzing the movie, yeah, I mean, I've really got to pay attention to it and definitely have to watch it more than once. And, um, but no, I could definitely sit back and just enjoy a movie and, you know, take the uh, symbolic eyeglasses off, as it were. <laughs> So is there anything else that uh, before we start wrapping her up that you want to want to get across to our, our listening audience? Well, well, let me just say um, thanks guys for having me on Gramerica. I thought it was a great show. If I could just get my website out, that'd be, that'd be great. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, we're going to link to all your, all your stuff yeah. too and, and highly recommend. I mean, I do like the depth. Uh, I got a chance to look at a little bit of your book there and I do like how in depth you get with it all. It's very good. And the first, uh, the first portion of your book where you kind of build that, groundwork of the symbolism and uh, that's really really uh you know it's uh it's fascinating and it's in depth i learned a lot just from that well thank you yeah what i tried to do was give a detailed introduction what's important for me when i write these books is i want i want to i want to make sure that a person if a person has no understanding of this material and is coming to it for the first time i have to lay the groundwork you know, I have to explain, you know, what some of this material is. Yeah. And I did this in Royal Arch of Enoch. I mean, I guess the point I'm trying to make is I want to make it, I wanted to make the book where if you were familiar with it, you knew what you were going to be reading, but if you had no clue about it, I had to give you a groundwork, a framework for you to look at. So I always try to start the books off by giving a, you know, kind of detailed introduction. Um, and I did this with Royal Arch of Enoch too. So I'm glad you liked it at any rate. And um, like I said, that that's my motive for doing that. 
but yeah, I just want to say thanks guys for having me on and, you know, thanks for linking up everything. Um, if, if you like this podcast, if you like this interview, um, please go to my website. It's the easiest way to, um, to, f- to find more about me and to buy my books. Um, my website is www.robertwsullivanivy.com. My name is the fourth, Robert W. Sullivan, the fourth. So it's just Robert W. Sullivan with two L's, I-V, that's the letter I, the letter V.com, robertwsullivanivy.com. From there, there's links there to buy the books. If you want the paperback signed, I'd be getting some requests for those. Those are sold exclusively through my publisher. You can That's linked up. Um, it's in the ebook. It's in the Kindle. It's in the Nook, the Apple iBookstore. Um, actually, right now, we are having a sale on the ebooks. They have been reduced to $5.99. Um, so you're going to want to pick that up. That's a, that's a gift. The, the Royal, that's for both books. Um, I mean, that's a piece. The Royal Arch of Enoch is nearly 700 pages. And cinema symbolism is nearly 500. So you know you can get a 500-page book for five for 5.99 or a 700-page book for 5.99. So that's on discount the way after Christmas. We're doing that for the holidays. Um, again, to my website, there's links there to my social media, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, like pages, all that. Everything there. More about me. You can listen to other radio shows I've done. Some watch some videos I produced. Um, again, Robert W. Sullivan, Ivy.com. Links to buy the book links to you know read reviews about the book um watch youtube videos it's all right there check it out and uh thank you guys for having me on so much i thought it was a great show i really appreciate you having me on um and you know i'm just glad you you like you know you like what you saw and um it's always my pleasure to come on with you guys and i really appreciate it yeah thanks a lot robert good luck with your uh, cinema symbolism too yeah when oh i'm back on for cinema symbolism too you have to watch prometheus first yeah <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely see if I can't uh, get that, squeeze that in and uh, tell you what I think of it. No doubt about it. Great. Thanks a lot, Robert. Okay. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to the Great America Show. That was our chat with Robert Sullivan, the fourth. Sully Esquire. That was a fun one. I like talking about movies. I like <clears> watching <throat> movies. Yeah, and I feel like I'm Dave got deja vu here because you just deleted the last <laughs> fucking outro we did with about this. We're gonna talk about that. I had a good spiel about the monomyth and all that stuff, right? What about the monomyth? Well, how it's it's I think humans gravitate towards this reluctant hero thing, right? Like the Neo and Matrix or Luke Skywalker and Star Wars or Frodo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings, right? Frodo Who Baggins. doesn't want to be the re- reluctant hero? Right? <laughs> so is, I think there's an inherent human desire and attraction for those stories. That's why those those movies are so big, right? I don't so, know. I prefer the anti-hero. Really? You mean the fucking John McClane's? Well, yeah. So, and then you had a point to make about the, uh, the monomyth, uh, uh, is that the guy that, what is that? The normal guy that changes history thing or something? It's not about the... Oh, the great, the great man theory. Yeah. yeah that, I don't know if, uh, I know if I buy that. That out. history needs great men to advance it. Not, not, it's not a collective thing. Like, uh, some people might like to believe it's just a 
great people lead us forward. A few great guys doing like really great things that keep moving us forward. I said great people. You said great guys. Um, Yeah. Well, great women and guys, I meant. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. Clarifying. Yeah. (laughs) Grandmacterimerica.com. Dot CA works too. It's a good thing when you Sometimes I think it's weird that our emails.com and our sites.ca. Yeah. Well, you should change that, then you have the power. Or is it too late now? The sites.com and .ca. And so is the email, really. .ca just forwards .com. Anyways, we want to thank Robert Sullivan, before we get too off track here, for coming on, talking about all the symbolism. He's got another book coming out already. That's going to be good. Uh, it's pretty cool stuff. So that's what I asked you, too. Do you think this is intentional, or, or uh, all this embedded symbolism in movies, or is it just part of our pop culture? 50-50. Really? That reminds me, I did want to talk about something else, too. I was going to save it till next week, because uh, Gitmo's coming on the show next week. But uh, I know the date is, it's only like, these Kickstarter campaigns, you always only get so long. Um, so I think it's only got like 25 days like left or something like that, so I figured better just get it out this week. Uh, basically, it is a Kickstarter Basically, it is a uh, Kickstarter for recycling old soda bottles, two liters, one liters, things like that, into high-flying rockets uh, without rocket fuel. So, Like like model rockets or like real rockets? Yes, well, sort of like fucking toy rockets. Toy rockets model right. rockets, yeah. except that at two liters with, with some PVC pipe and stuff like that. Um, it's pretty cool. There's a fucking YouTube video of it in action on the page there. What's it called? Soda Jet. Soda Jet. Soda Jet. I'll link yeah. to that in the show notes. Fuck yeah. Uh, that's our buddy Gitmo Yoho, a friend of everybody Gitmo Yoho's. All right. Kickstarter. So yeah, looks pretty cool. Yeah. I want one. Yeah. We want to say thanks to Gitmo too for supporting our show. Yeah. Yeah. He's a big supporter of ours. Supports our value for value model, and we hope you do too, of course. As always, Spam Graham. Follow us on Twitter at Grimerica. Like the Facebook page. There's a honey do honey dooby dooby do list on the on the show doobie notes doobie with doobie all doobie. the links. What's that? Review the show. Yeah, it's got all the, the links and stuff. View the show where you yeah. can. Support the show. You can now donate to the show. Uh, like we said in the intro, you can donate through cast castbacker.com slash grimerica. Uh, listen live, grimerica.com slash backstage, all that fun stuff. Uh, as usual, you'll find the links in the show notes to everything we talked about and all the music here. Anything else? Did we miss anything? No, that's about it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week.